Last week we uh, noted in the, that obviously that anybody that's read the New Testament knows that uh, when you read the New Testament, there's not a plurality of different denominations. Uh, we noted that uh, uh, contrary to the, the view of some, there is no denominated body named the Church of Christ. There is no denominated body named Baptist, Presbyterian, Catholic, or, or any of the, the common names that what we read in the New Testament is the, the followers of Jesus were simply called disciples uh, with a small d. And they were Christians. Uh, in fact, the, most of the time they were referred to as disciples, that uh, Christians, the word Christian itself is only used two times in the New Testament. And so they were called Christians, disciples, believers. And then as a body of people, uh, they were really never given a specific name. Uh, when you find the term Church of God or Churches of Christ or Church of the Firstborn or Church of the Lord or something of that nature, it'll always be with a, a small c on church unless it starts a sentence because the translators recognized that it was not a denominating name but it rather was a phrase of possession showing a belonging to God or a belonging to Christ. And so when he speaks of the Church of God or the Churches of Christ or the Church of the Firstborn, uh, it's not doing it in as a name body, but rather this is a body. I'm writing to the body of people that belong to God or belong to God uh, through Christ. Um, the various terms that were used were really used to show a relationship with God, like it's referred to as the body of Christ, designating that we are a body of people that look to Christ as our head. Uh, it's referred to as the kingdom. Uh, pointing out that we were a body of people that recognized Christ as our king. Uh, sometimes a relationship of husband and wife is used, with Christ being the husband and the church the bride, and, and showing that relationship. Sometimes the parent-child relationship is uh, used. Uh, sometimes the word vineyard is used, but whatever is used, it's just simply a word uh, that is used to show a relationship that the followers of Christ sustained to God. And these people were simply followers of Christ. Uh, they became Christian for one reason, really. Oh, what was that one reason? No other reason for becoming a Christian. Trick <laughs> I think everybody thinks it's a trick question. Not, the only reason, there's, there's absolutely no other reason for becoming a Christian. Christianity stands or falls on this. Death, burial, resurrection. Death, burial, resurrection. Uh, right, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul made the statement, if Christ is not raised from the dead, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Uh, this business of uh, be a Christian for other reasons, are being good or having ethics and things like that, those come about because a person is a Christian. There's only one reason for being a Christian. If, if Jesus is not literally the Son of God, and if the resurrection is not a historical fact, then he was a hoax and an imposter and a liar. Uh, that, that he's either, either, the, either that or he was, was the other. And so in the first century, that people became Christians upon being convinced that uh, as a result of the resurrection that was proof that he was who he claimed to be, that it was the miracle of all miracles in his being raised from the dead. And so when a person became a Christian, he didn't sit down and 
and decide what church to belong to. He didn't go through everybody's catechism or anything like that. But he just simply was somebody that was convinced on the basis of the evidence that Jesus had been raised from the dead and that he was the Son of God and that in Christ he could have remission of sins and that also that was a perfect life to, to emulate and the most successful way to live your life. And the worship, it all revolved, all their worship revolved around praises to Christ and thanksgiving for him. And it was that simple uh, in, in the early church. Well, look at the uh, uh, first part here on the chart. When in the authority within the church, all authority resided within the apostles. Uh, he had chosen the 12 apostles. Uh, they had been with him for about three and a half years until he was executed. Uh, then there was the Apostle Paul. Uh, one of the qualifications of an apostle is that the person had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. There's no other. That was a key uh, point, that he had to literally be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And so they were the authority in the early church, and these passages simply show how that the others respected them as the authority in the church, and uh, that... Uh, this authority was established through the miracles. The, uh, the miracles did not take place to heal people. Uh, that wasn't the reason for it. All those people that got healed would only get sick again. And uh, they took place as confirmation that these people were spokesmen for God to confirm and prove the message. They were credentials. Uh, and keep in mind, even in the first century, only a very, 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 very small percentage of people were ever touched in any way by a miracle, that it, was, it happened for one reason, and that was to prove who he was, and to prove that the apostles were spokesmen for God. And so they were set up as the authority, and through them, uh, God communicated the truths of the New Testament. Okay, now the New Testament canon. Uh, turn to the first paid passage over there. We looked at this... Uh, to show the, how the canon was established. Uh, in Colossians 4 and verse uh, 16, oh, 16 or 4, 16 18, I hope I wrote the right verse in. Uh, in 4, uh, yeah, verse 16, uh, would you read that Mark, please? Sure. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Okay, you can see there what happened. Uh, there was really nobody in the first century that had the completed New Testament. That it was in the process of being written letter by letter, and when Paul would write to like the uh, Colossians, he had established that church. Uh, that uh, He wrote, writes to the Colossians, and uh, they would take the letter, and there would be copies, hundreds of copies made. And, of course, they would send, he specifies, the Laodiceans, and there was another letter from Laodicea that he wanted them to get hold of. So right away, there's all kinds of copies made of these letters, and they began to circulate. And the New Testament canon, the criteria, when it was put together, was that every book in the New Testament either had to be authored by one of the apostles or endorsed by an apostle. 
And so uh, the way the canon is formed is that the Christians evaluated all these documents and only if it was proved to them beyond any doubt in their mind that the material was written by an apostle or endorsed by an apostle. Only then did it get into the canon. Uh, for example, in the Gospels, Matthew and John were eyewitnesses of what they wrote. Uh, Mark was not, and neither was Luke, and neither were apostles. Uh, Mark got into the canon because Mark was a convert of the apostle Peter. And he actually wrote his gospel listening to Peter preach. And in the first century, what we call the gospel of Mark was known as the gospel of Peter according to Mark. And so Mark is in there because it was really the preaching of Peter as recorded by Mark. Luke writes as the only Gentile in the New Testament and probably one of the best educated ones. Uh, he writes as a historian. He introduces his book and tells you he's writing as a historian and how he gathers all his materials from the various eyewitnesses. And Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. All evidence is that he was converted by Paul. And he was a companion of Paul, traveled with him. He wrote Luke and Acts. And so because of his connection with Paul, his writing was embraced right away and endorsed by Paul. So all these documents were written while the apostles were alive and they were circulating at that time and they had the endorsement of the apostles. And so what was going to happen, you can see the authority initially was in the apostles. Well then as the apostles died, then the authority went to the documents they left behind, or the New Testament documents. And uh, turn over to 2 Peter 3, 15, 16, and notice uh, a statement there how they recognized. Uh, this is a statement uh, from the apostle Peter concerning uh, the writings of Paul. Let's see, 2 Peter 3, and 15 and 16. Uh, have you got that, Luke? No. You want? Uh, you don't? Okay, I thought if you had, I was going to let you read it, but I won't pull a fast <laughs> one. Chuck, would you read that, please? Okay. Bear in mind that our, that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant, unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Okay, now look at how Peter put Paul's letters on a par with the scriptures. Now the scriptures the early church start with is what we call the Old Testament. Uh, that was the foundation and that's what they started with. And so you can see how that uh, Paul had a reputation even then of writing some things that a lot of people were having difficulty with. And so he says that, that some people find it hard, and he says they twist them, as they do the other scriptures, and so we see some of that's going on right then, and yet you have the endorsement of Peter on Paul's letters and putting it on a par with the other scriptures. Now, uh, two other passages. Turn over to John 14 and verse 26. This is Jesus here speaking uh, uh, to the apostles uh, in this context. This is the last, uh, uh, last 
part of his life, the last night or two of his life before they killed him. Uh, Nancy, would you want to read the Start with verse 25 and read 25 and 26. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things that will remind you of everything I have said to you. Okay, so he told them that, that uh, when he left, the Holy Spirit would give them a, a remembrance of all that he had taught them, uh, and he would guide them on into all things. Well, now, flip on over to the 16th chapter, and notice there, in that context, he's speaking directly to the 12 apostles there. Uh, John 16 and uh, 17 through, 7 through 13. All right, by the way, if anybody doesn't want to read them, we'll go around, just feel comfortable to pass. We just, uh, uh, next one. Annette, do you want to? Um, it's at 16, 7 through 13. Uh-huh, 7 through 13. <laughs> Okay, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For okay. he will go ahead. Right. Okay, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will not and he will tell you the things to come. Okay. Notice it said that um, I didn't tell you all truth because you were not yet able to understand it, and the Holy Spirit will guide you on into all truth. And so, again, speaking to the apostles, uh, he has taught them for three and a half years. He will continue on. And what we see, in fact, this will happen through the New Testament, truth is of such a nature that in order to understand a particular truth here, we often need to understand some truths back here. And a good example I always use because I think it's simple is like with elementary school when we teach kids math, uh, before we can teach long division is simple. If a child knows his multiplication tables and if he can add and subtract. And, and if he's been taught those three things, then long division will be very simple for him. But what happens to the child if he, at, at the point, here he is in the second grade, and he hasn't learned his multiplication tables yet. He's just now learning to add and subtract. Well, you try to take him to long division, and it'll be too complicated for him. It's not because he's not smart enough. It's because he just simply hasn't had his mind prepared. Well, in college, you have courses that have prerequisites uh, because that you need this in order to be able to understand that information over there. And you're taking French. You need French 1 before you go to, to French 2. And so in the same way, these truths, when Jesus taught them, he taught them as they had the ability to understand him, Mark 4.33. And then they would continue on. For a one simple example, the Jew did not understand that the Gentile was going to come in on an equal basis and that the church would be a spiritual entity composed of Jew and Gentile, where Jew and Gentile, male and female, were all one in Christ. He definitely did not understand that. And, and he's going to have to be corrected on a lot of misconceptions to understand it. And he's leading him up to that point. But suffice it to say 
that the Holy Spirit was promised to them to guide them into all truth. Uh, they were also promised, I could have put down passages where he promised them uh, the miraculous ability to confirm those words uh, in order to prove that the message was from God. And so what would happen as the apostles died off, uh, the New Testament would replace them as the authority in the church. And when we go back and read, uh, I just one example. This is one of a 10-volume set of the anti-Nicene uh, uh, fathers. Uh, the Nicene Creed was written in 325. And in this 10-volume set, I have all the works of uh, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, and all these guys that wrote uh, in those early years, some of them converted by the apostles. Um, we have some 1,500 documents by them. Uh, in those 1,500 documents, they completely quote the entire New Testament. And then, of course, we have their commentary and all on it. So what I'm saying is, is through these documents that we have of the early church fathers converted by the apostles, as they wrote letters to various churches and to one another and wrote their commentaries, we can see their understanding and we can follow it. And then as we come to the end of this period, as we go all through history, we can follow the writings and the commentaries. And so I'm saying we can see the changes in the church and why they believed in the various ways. And we can also see their attitude towards the authority in the New Testament and things and the reasons they believed it and things like that. And so they would end, uh, the apostles die out. Uh, we have the New Testament. Now, before they died out, there were some things the apostles themselves warned them of. And so what we're going to note here is the first things that actually changed uh, in the, the Testament itself, in the uh, New Testament, and the thinking about it, that begins the process of leading to us being divided up into a multiplicity of different denominations right now, and why, when, where, where the various groups come about. Uh, in those passages, I won't read them, and uh, you've got, you can just go back and check that on your own, but in Acts, Peter, Timothy, and Titus, uh, the government of the early church was very simple. Uh, there was nobody in charge that had any real authority. Uh, each congregation had a plurality of elders. Uh, their qualifications were such that they were just simply spiritual people who could teach, had a good knowledge of the, of, of the of the scriptures, uh, lived a life where they were a light in their community and were well respected, and then based on that had good family relations, and based on that they were picked to be overseers in the congregation. And there was no such thing as a bishop of the congregation, there was no such thing as a pastor of the congregation. Uh, there was no such thing as a reverend. In fact, in the New Testament, nobody's ever called a reverend or anything like that. Nobody's called father uh, other than God himself. And so the, it was very simple. You have the congregations. The authority is in the scriptures. And, and then each congregation has a plurality of elders. And then under those elders, they would have deacons. Uh, the word deacon is just really a Greek word that means what? Sir servant. Uh, and it's interesting what the translators did here to show you a little bias. When it, when it referred to a lady, they translated it servant. When it referred to a man, 
they translated it deacon and left the impression that we've got this special place for the men and other. But in reality, the word is simply servant. And whether you're referring to men or women, uh, there was it was just simply a servant in the church. And the, and the church had uh, female servants, just as they had male servants within the church. Okay, now, it's that simple, but then notice, turn to Acts 20, and notice a warning that uh, Paul gave even to elders within. Acts 20, and beginning with verse uh, 17 and reading up to 31. Uh, Mark, would you read that, please? From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. Although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks, and they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. No, on to verse 31. Oh, okay. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only, if, I, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you, that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he, brought, which he bought with his own blood. And now that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Okay, notice the, he calls the elders at Ephesus. Paul started the church at Ephesus, and uh, the, every place they built a church, they picked the plurality of elders. And what does he say that he knows is going to happen? Where is the problem going to take place in the church? People will rise up and distort the truth and draw disciples after themselves. Okay, but he's, he said, I know that he refers to them as savage wolves, using it as a metaphor, in the same way Jesus is the Lamb of God, um, that he refers to them. He said there's going to be, from, there's going to be people uh, that in their quest for power uh, will, will be concerned about drawing disciples after themselves. Uh, and to show you how people fall into this thing, remember when he wrote to the uh, Corinthians in the first chapter, they were already starting to divide up and some saying, I am of Paul and I am of Paulus and I am Cephas, and Paul had to, to rebuke them. But there is a, 
uh, one of man's greatest weaknesses is, is his pride and his desire for power. I mean, we, we just like to be boss. And that uh, the, it's, we see it all through the Old Testament and we see it all through history that, uh, I mean, how many thousands and thousands and millions of people have lost their lives because some individual wanted power, whether it's Saddam Hussein or Hitler or Stalin or, or how many politicians do you see that are absolutely wealthy so they're not doing it for money and yet they will lie, cheat, deceive, or, or do just about anything, it seems like sometimes, to get in a position of power. That uh, apparently it's a, it, it, power is a, a very uh, appealing thing to some. So, he, we, Paul is on, on the verge of going out. He'll be killed a few years after that. And he's already said that there's going to be problems within the structure of the leadership. Okay, what happens then, look at your diagram again. In the uh, New Testament, we have uh, plural elders in a congregation. Well, then we noted the, the first change that will take place is that uh, they will start to, they will create a situation where you'll just have one bishop in a church and then elders under that one bishop. Uh, Chuck, if you want to, what it is, I've got that thing on a timer for when we were gone, and it cuts on and off, and I just, if you just unplug it, plug it in. We can handle this. I don't know, Chuck. Let's see. There you go. Uh, the, in the New Testament, uh, bishop is just simply a, a Greek word that means overseer, and elders had reference to the fact they were older men, and they were actually the same group of people. So whether you said presbyter, or bishop, or elder, or shepherd, you were talking about the same group of people in the New Testament. It just, it just simply described uh, their relationship to people. Well, they changed, and so they, they would reach the point where one person would become the bishop. And maybe it was the person that was the most dominant personality, uh, the best teacher, whatever it would be, but he would become the head one, and then you'd have the elders under him. Well, then they reached a point where uh, they developed an archbishop, and an archbishop would be over a group of churches, say 10 churches. And so now you've got a bishop over one church with elders, and then you'd have an archbishop. And so what happens, uh, we keep, this thing keeps getting bigger and bigger and, and more centralized. And what we wind up with is the pope by the time we hit, uh, in fact, look at the paragraph I've got down under that. Uh, by the time we hit 608 AD, we have our first official pope. Uh, Boniface proclaimed himself to be the universal bishop or papa. Uh, the kids today might say big daddy, same thing. Uh, universal bishop or papa uh, setting the precedent for all subsequent popes, an office unknown prior to that time. And then uh, the next statement, the Council of 1870, the Vatican Council, proclaimed the doctrine of papal infallibility. In other words, the doctrine of papal infallibility that's believed in the Catholic Church today really did not exist until 1870. Uh, up until that time, he was regarded as fallible, and, and what happened, the longer he was in the position, uh, the more power he got, and then finally somebody comes with the idea of, of papal infallibility. By the way, that's also why that the Catholic Church has real problems 
when they make a mistake and they actually know they've made a mistake, but they can't back off of it because then their doctrine of infallibility goes down the tubes. That's why that when it comes to uh, birth control, for example, the statement they've got absolutely wrong under, under any situation whatsoever, uh, they would like to back off of that, but they can't because it's, it stands there at the order of the Pope. Another thing they would like to back off of is the celibacy of their priesthood. Uh, they, the, the majority are not for that, but the problem they're having is the fact that it has endorsement of the Pope, and so that doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope is, is on the line. And that's why that you have a situation then where the majority in the Roman Catholic Church would do away with it, but they simply can't. Uh, and that's also some of the problems they're having in some other areas. It, it's this doctrine here that cannot allow a situation where they have, have made a mistake. Okay, this uh, evolves down uh, to the Pope uh, in the 600s. And then what will happen the, in 1054, if you got a pencil, wouldn't put it on there, but next week I'll have that on, that'll go with the next page. In 1054, we have the split between what is the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church. And what they split on was the Pope. In other words, what is happening, he keeps getting more and more and more power, and as he gets more and more power, there are obviously those that are disturbed. And so then the Greek part of the church, the Eastern part of the church, uh, would not accept him as the head. And so they split over the concept of the Pope, and they went their way, and that became the Greek Orthodox Church. And so now we have the, in 1054, the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox, and the split took place over the Greek Orthodox refusal to accept the Pope. And that's why that in their worship there's a lot of similarities, um, but the big difference is the rejection of the, of the Pope in Rome. Okay, now, what happened, look at the paragraph again. It says, leaders began to regard themselves as successors to the apostles. Uh, this business of believing that after the apostles there were people, uh, for example, the Pope claims to be the successor to Peter. Well, you don't, you don't even find any mention of this when you read the first few hundred years in the history of the church. This idea is not even in anybody's mind. And so it, it gradually evolves. And what we see when people get in a position of power, uh, the longer they've been in it, the more power they want. Uh, it, it, you can see it somewhat, and I don't want to get into a political thing and all, but in our government, uh, our government has started by Thomas Jefferson, Washington, and those people. They never intended for the, uh, the central government to have anywhere near the strength that it has now. They, they never intended that at all. I mean, they, they were thinking about the common defense of the country and the common good and things like that, but to, to have an entity just literally ruled the entire country. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that was not the idea. That what happened as years progress on, the central government just got stronger and stronger and stronger and continues to get stronger. And as you go back through history, you can study any country you want to, whether it's England, France, Spain, Germany, anyone. And you always start out with a very simple power structure. And then as that evolves, people just want more power. And, and so you always then go in the direction 
of a stronger power. And I, there's no exceptions to it. You start out with something simple, and it evolves and evolves and becomes something strong. Remember, the Israelites wanted a king to be like the other nations. And God didn't want them to have a king. He wanted the, the law and the prophets, and they had their judges and all, and, and what would be exalted would be the law. And he warned them against a king. He said, if you get a king, he's going to want power. And you're, you're going to wind up doing a lot of things that you don't, that you don't want. Well, nothing would do them but to have a king, and so God let them have a king. He didn't force his way on them. And what you see then is that David starts off, uh, and as David starts off, he's, uh, or I should say Saul. We start out with Saul. Remember Saul at first, how he's kind of humble and, and really wants to do the right thing? What happens to Saul? After he's king for a little bit, he gets a big head. And, and he starts taking more power on himself. And then find David starts off great. And then what happens to David? Next thing we know, he's committing adultery with Bathsheba and having her husband put to death. And he just seems to have the attitude that, that he tells somebody to jump and they're supposed to ask how high. Well, David had to be humble. But the point is, even a man as good as David had a hard time handling that kind of power. Then remember Solomon. Uh, they have the split in Israel because Solomon became very oppressive. And then all through the history of Israel, uh, you have this kind of thing. And when you look at the kings of other countries. So what I'm saying is, there is a, a character flaw in here with human beings. We, we just say, if we don't watch ourselves, we just tend to, to want power, and we think that we've got all the best answers. And so this thing evolves, and look at the next statement in 325. Uh, Constantine, this is the emperor of Rome, recognized the Council of Nicaea as the first official church lawmaking assembly. Up to this time, there has been no recognized authority except uh, the apostles. And now for the first time, we have a council that people recognize as having the authority to make laws. And now he made Christianity the national religion of the Roman Empire. It's interesting. Christianity conquered the world when it was a persecuted sect. Uh, when it became the official religion of the Roman Empire is when corruption began to set in in the church itself. And what's going to happen now, uh, Rome, the Christians become the, the official religion of the Roman Empire. Well, now think of the Roman government. You've got the Caesar, and then you've got your Senate. And what will happen, the Roman church will pattern itself exactly to a T after the government of Rome. And so they will have the Pope instead of Caesar, and then they'll have the cardinals, and they'll have the bishops, uh, the, the chief bishops and all, and then on down the line. But by the time they're through, you can just simply take the government of Rome and the church and put them side by side, and you've got the same kind of power structure. Okay, so now... There were many changes in organization, worship, moral standards, and so what we have, I'm saying that some of these changes that take place in the Bible, the first thing that had to take place was a change in the authority structure. And then when you establish the authority, then you could say, in other words, people will, will say today, for example, uh, if such and such in the Bible is so plain, how could people ever be so duped? By it. You know, like I'll take a simple thing like baptism. Uh, uh, you got sprinkling or immersion. 
or do we do babies or, or just adults? And, and somebody would say, well, it has to be, the, the Bible has to be very confusing on that because we've got intelligent people that practice both ways. And we do have intelligent people practicing both ways. But what happened is that, that as, the author, as the authority, there's nobody that understands it differently. Uh, I have here, for example, this is a, you can see St. Joseph's New Catholic Edition. This is the Roman Catholic Bible. And when I turn over here to uh, the New Testament, we know, for example, that the Catholics practice sprinkling for baptism, and they also baptize babies. And so you think, well, is there some difference in understanding on this passage? And you read in Romans 6, where it says, uh, Do you not know that all we who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? We were buried with him by means of baptism, and just as Christ is risen from the dead through the glory of the Father, we also might walk in the newness of life. If we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And the, we have the statement of a burial and a resurrection and everything. Well, here's the comment of the Catholic priest. They have their comments to the side. He says, St. Paul alludes to the manner in which baptism was ordinarily conferred in the primitive church by immersion. The descent into the water is suggestive of the descent of the body into the grave. And the ascent is suggestive of the resurrection to a new life. Paul obviously sees more than a mere symbol in the rite of baptism. As a result of it, we're incorporated into Christ's mystical body and live a new life. Well, notice he has no problem with that. Well, see, the, the reason the Catholic Church started something like sprinkling wasn't because of any difference in understanding here. That what happened as the authority changed in 250 AD, there was a guy by the name of Novation. And you can read about Novation in the, their own records here the, of the church fathers. Novation was sick. He thought he was going to die and he wanted to be baptized. And so they, he wasn't well enough to immerse. And so they, the uh, bishops got together and came to the conclusion that uh, sprinkling would be okay for somebody that was sick. So they sprinkled him and they called it clinical baptism. Okay, for 1100, almost 1100 years, from 250 that time, all the way down to 1311, everybody was immersed, except somebody who was sick. And then they sprinkled them, they called it clinical baptism. But then we have another council, the Council of Ravenna in 1311. And the Council of Ravenna got together and all the bishops and the cardinals, and they said, well, if, if sprinkling is good enough for somebody that's sick, then really it's good enough for somebody that's well. And so let's simply just do it. It's a lot simpler thing, and so they did it. And so they cut out immersion and substituted sprinkling. Well, see, the reason that by that time the Catholic Church is thoroughly in turn, in, entrenched in the minds of people and they've already accepted the Pope and the bishops and the cardinals and all. So the reason they would embrace that is not because they didn't understand what was taught in the Bible, but it was because they believed in the authority of the Pope. And so once it was ratified by the Pope, and so they looked on it in the same way that we amend our Constitution, and, and, sometime, and, and sometimes for the betterment, right? I mean, the proclamation of, uh, concerning the... Uh, Freedom of the blacks, the 13th, 14th Amendment to the Constitution, was good. 
So see, once they accepted that authority structure, that uh, the Pope is a successor to Peter, the apostle, and then he has a right to call these councils and they got that chain, well then, anytime they want to change something, they just call a council and they come together and they think of it just like we do and amend in our constitution. And so, when we talk with them, those of us that think of the Bible in a different way, they wonder what all the fuss is about. Here we, we get our Bible out and we, we're trying to explain this to them, and they don't have any problem to understand it. Uh, the difference is, is, is the authority. And so that was one of, the, one of the changes after that. All right, now, as time goes on, other changes take place. For example, this again, I'm reading from the Catholic Bible. And I'm reading over here in uh, 1 Timothy 3. Remember that I had on your chart there, 1 Timothy 3 is uh, given the qualifications for a man to be a bishop or an elder in the church. And it says, uh, blameless, uh, married but once, uh, etc., not a drinker, a brawler, moderate, not quarrelsome, uh, rule his own house well, keeping his children under control. In other words, the fact that a man had his family under control and had a good relationship with his wife and all. And anyway, you could look at this guy, he was blameless and he, was, he could be a bishop. Well then, of course, we know that the Catholic Church practiced this, this celibacy. Uh, and you cannot be a bishop in the Catholic Church without being celibate. Okay, so listen to his comment. Uh, verse 4, bishop represents a Greek word meaning overseer. He's correct. And presbyter, another Greek word meaning elder. He's right. When you read the word presbyter, uh, it literally is just a Greek word that means elder. It's the same, it's the same word. In St. Paul, in Paul, bishop and presbyter seem to be used convertibly, and probably priests are here included under the term bishops. Okay? Notice he understands that. And this is a Catholic priest writing this commentary. Married but once, he comments on that. Priestly celibacy as a law is of later ecclesiastical institution. No condemnation of second marriages in general is intended. And so he tells you that the uh, celibacy thing is a later thing. Well, it's, it's the 1100s. And so all the way up until the 1100s, the 12th century, the Roman Catholic priests were married. And, and they pursued the same things that we read here. And then what you wind up with is all the time this is going on, though, you have hundreds of years, celibacy is exalted within the church. Uh, and, and through a misunderstanding of, of certain things in the New Testament, but celibacy was exalted. And so their reasoning was, well, Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. John the Baptist wasn't married. Uh, Barnabas wasn't married. And they were the spiritual giants in the church. So obviously, celibacy is a way that you can dedicate yourself to God. And so the next thing you know, we have a law against priest Marian, and they come together in a council. They ratify. Now, when they ratified in the 1100s, they could still have changed it later on. But the problem is, in 1870, they declared the pope infallible. And the pope that was declared infallible went back and ratified this other. So now they're in a, they're in a hard position. There is a real shortage of priests in the Catholic Church. And one of the reasons there's a real shortage is because of the celibacy thing. And, and more priests are leaving the Catholic Church that are going into it 
And most of them are leaving, are leaving because they're getting married. And some of them are even defying the, pre, the Pope and going ahead and, and marrying. And some of them are, are living with ladies that in their mind they're married to, but they're not going through the, the official thing because of the church. But the problem that Rome has with it, they would like to change it. But the infallibility of the Pope uh, keeps them from doing that at this point in time. So what we see as time goes on, these people honestly have convinced themselves now that they are Christ's vicar on this. The Pope is Christ's vicar, and they have this authority, and the Holy Spirit is working through them. In other words, they're not necessarily, don't think of them as willful liars. They're not. They honestly believe the Pope has this authority, just like uh, Hitler convinced an entire nation that they were a master race of people. I mean, he actually convinced uh, the majority of a nation of people that they were a master race of people. And so in the Catholic Church, they became honestly convinced that this guy is Christ's vicar, the successor to the apostle. And these bishops and all are guided by the Holy Spirit in some special way. And so they just kept doing these laws, and the people just kept accepting them. Now, another thing they did in the early years as they wanted to solidify their power, one of the popes uh, passed the edict that the common people were not to read and study the Bible for themselves. And so what happened then is we go for a period of time where the common people, they're only who translated it into English for the common people, and dig his bones up and burn it and, and scare him, uh, to scatter it. In other words, to show the people that this guy was a, was a nothing. But I'm saying they were that adamant in keeping the scriptures out of the hands of the common people and putting them in a position where they had to depend on the Pope. So this kind of thing goes on for years. Now, I could go on and on and on about all the different things that came about. The, the baptism of infants, and, and I won't. You know, we're going to end this on, on this part. The baptism of infants came about after they uh, some bishop. Keep in mind, if there's no authority other than the scriptures, then if I study and come to believe something that's wrong, I can't force it on you. Uh, the only way I can get you to believe it is to reason with you and persuade you, and you may accept or reject it. But the point is, I have to prove it to you. But if you've accepted me as the authority, and then I become convinced of something, you accept it, whether, you know, whether you're convinced of it or not. So what happens? Some church father comes to the conclusion that babies are born in sin, that the sin of Adam is on them, and that they will die and go to hell unless they're baptized. And so they start the baptism. In fact, it starts right about the third century. We have the first baptism of babies. And what you have is some chief archbishop up here that has figured this thing out, and now he has the authority. And at first, the way we read about it in history, by the way, is at first when they do these things, it's debated. And, and it will be debated for years and years and years before that uh, it's accepted. It's sort of like uh, abortion on demand. When the Supreme Court first uh, passed that back in the 1970s, I believe 72, that uh, it was a really a hot debated thing, and it's still being debated. But what happens as time goes on, you will wind up with more and more of the population on one side, and eventually you'll reach the point where very few will, will feel any, anything whatsoever. And that's what happened on these things. At first, there would be a lot of debating, but then after years and years and years, everything would settle down, 
and the authority figures would win out. And so we have all these things that began to take place. Now, let's get up here to uh, uh, Martin Luther, notice the date there, 1517. Martin Luther is a priest in the Catholic Church. Uh, he's very intelligent, very well educated. He's fluent in Greek and Hebrew, and by the way, a lot of the Catholic monks were. What Martin Luther did could have never been successful, except there were a lot of other Catholic priests that felt the same way that he did. But anyway, as they changed things over the years, they went for, right in the early 1500s, Rome really spent money. I mean, the Catholic Church spent a lot of money building these tremendous cathedrals. They lived a very rich lifestyle for the Pope and all the pomp that surrounds him and everything like that. So they were always needing money. And so they devised a way to get some more money in the treasury, and that's through the sale of indulgences. And so with money, you could actually buy the right to commit a sin. And so that when, they, when this passed and was endorsed for the Pope, for Martin Luther, this became the straw that broke the camel's back. And so Martin Luther, in 1517, October, I forget the exact date, but in October 1517, uh, Martin Luther went in to his chief bishop and he nailed his little 95-point thesis on the door, uh, something that took tremendous courage. His life could have been taken. And what it was is 95 things practiced by the Catholic Church that were at variance with the New Testament and the apostles. And his idea was to grab their attention and to reform the Catholic Church. Um, in 1521, the Catholic Church excommunicated Martin Luther. Uh, when they excommunicated him and kicked him out, uh, then he went out and there were other people that felt just like he did and they left the Catholic Church and started worshiping with him. And so what we have now is the Protestant Reformation. So we had this split in 1054 with the Greek Orthodox Church. And now we have Martin Luther, and from Luther will come the first Protestant church. It comes from the word protest, protest against the Pope. That's all Protestant means. It's a protest against the authority of the Pope. And there's one difference between the Protestants and the Catholic, and that is the authority. The, the Catholic Church is saying the authority is in the Pope and in the church. The Protestant is protesting against that, and he says, no, the authority is in the scriptures and in the apostles, and that the, that the church made a big mistake in ever accepting the pope and that. And so when you have Catholicism and Protestant divided up today, there's one difference, one big difference. And one is saying that the authority is in the pope and in the church, the living church. Uh, the other is saying it, the authority is in the apostles and the, the living word, and this was a mistake. And that's, that's a pretty big difference, and, 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 but, it, but it's there. Okay, he starts... Where's the authority in the Greek Orthodox since they rejected the Pope? Okay, the Greek Orthodox rejects the Pope. And, but really, it wasn't because they had all that much respect of wanting to hold on to everything just like the New Testament. Uh, there was a power struggle between Constantinople and, and the East and Rome. And he finally settled with Rome winning out. And so Constantinople, they just simply seemed to fully accept the Pope was to give up their power. 
and it was their power they really didn't want to give up more than defend in the New Testament. And so they wind up with a C over the Greek Orthodox Church who has the same kind of authority over them that the Pope has over the Roman Catholic Church. But, but notice some differences. The Greek Orthodox Church tended to remain much more respectful of the scriptures uh, than the Roman Catholic. For example, uh, they rejected sprinkling. See, baptism is a Greek word that simply means immersion. And so obviously when the Greeks read it, you, you, it's not so easy to tell them that it's, it has a meaning because they're reading immersion. So the Greek Orthodox Church did not embrace sprinkling. They continued to immerse. And also when it came to several other things that the Catholic Church did, uh, they refused to accept it. So they remained actually, in fact, when I was in the Marine Corps, that I was in boot camp and I met a fellow there that was a Greek, or a member of the Greek Orthodox Church, and I noticed him because he was reading his Bible in the evening, and, and you know, I'd already pick up from the fact there weren't too many of us very religious. So anyway, I went out and talked with him, and he and I started worshiping together. And we'd get together on Sunday morning, and we would study, and the interesting thing to me was, you know, here's this guy from the Greek Orthodox Church, that he really, we were very similar, and that he had a very high degree of respect for the Bible and was very, very well studied in the scriptures. And so he and I would partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, we had prayer and we studied the scriptures during those time in, you know, in boot, in boot camp. But uh, they did remain more respectful and all towards the scriptures. Now, in one last point, we'll end this. When the Protestant Reformation starts, the first church that will come out of this, of course, will be called the Lutheran Church. But something to keep in mind, Martin Luther, uh, if you get to heaven, you're going to be there with Martin Luther, uh, despite what anybody says that thinks that their church is the true and blue or, or whatever. Martin Luther had no intention whatsoever of starting a church after his name. Uh, he was a very good man. He was a very, very sincere individual. And his desire was to get people to simply be Christians and to go back to the scriptures. Uh, and his thinking obviously had a lot of the, uh, of the traditions of Rome that were still in his mind and he hadn't weeded it all out at that point in time. Uh, but he definitely had tremendous respect for the scriptures uh, and his desire, and he even pleaded with people not to call themselves Lutherans. And that was his desire. And it would only be after his death and against his own will that when he died, he was the strong man in the movement. And so then other people began calling them Lutherans because they followed him, and then eventually they accepted the name. And one of the things you'll find as we come down through the Protestant groups is that a number of times they did not just choose that name, but other people would call them that. And then over a period of several generations, like the Baptists, for example, they never said that we're going to be the Baptist church, call us Baptist. But other people started calling them that because they were telling people that, hey, sprinkling came from the Catholic Church, you should be immersed, and so then other people started calling Baptists because they wouldn't fellowship you unless you were immersed. And, it, and, and, the, and then after a period of time, they just accepted it. The Methodists, the same way. They never said that we're going to be the Methodist Church, but it was because they, they met and they prayed. They were a very godly group of people, and they had certain times that they did things, and so people started calling Methodists. And, and then over a period of years, it, it finally stuck. And so when you, as we look at these Protestant groups uh, going through here in the future weeks, you're going to find out 
But you don't have ungodly people out trying to start something different than the New Testament. For the most part, you have a very, a very, very much a lot of very sincere, conscientious people, and who were just simply striving to go back to the Bible, and that these groups formed. Uh, sometimes after the death of the key person, and other people would give them the name, and then a few generations, and they embrace the name. So next week we'll pick up and we'll follow on down uh, in a chronological order uh, the dating of the various churches, including the Mormon, the Jehovah's Witness, and all the various groups, and get us on down to the present. Okay. Any comments or questions? By the way, let's have refreshments. If anybody wants to talk or go on, uh, we can go a little further down.